Chapter 8 of The Year When Stardust Fell. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jamie Todd. The Year When Stardust Fell by Raymond F. Jones. Chapter 8 Attack. There are people who feed upon disaster and grow in their own particular direction as they would never have grown without it, as does the queen bee who becomes queen only because of the special food prepared by the workers for her private use. Such a man was Henry Maddox. He would not have admitted it, nor was he ever able to realize it, for it violated the very principles he had laid down for Ken. But for him, the comet was like a sudden burst of purpose in his life. He had taught well in his career as professor of chemistry at the State Agricultural College at Mayfield, but it had become fairly mechanical. He was vaguely aware of straining at the chains of routine from time to time, but he had always forced himself through sheer exercise of will to attend to his duties. There was never time, however, for any of the research he used to tell himself in his younger days he was going to do. With the sudden thrusting aside of all customary duties, and with the impact of catastrophe demanding a solution to a research problem, he came alive without knowing what was happening. Yet without the imminence of disaster he would not have found the strength to drive himself so. This was what he could not admit to himself. Another who was nourished was Granny Wicks. She should have been dead years ago. She had admitted this to herself and to anyone else who would listen but now she knew why she had been kept alive so long past her time. She had been waiting for the comet. Its energy seemed to flow from the sky into her withered bony frame, and she drank of its substance until time seemed to reverse itself in her obsolete body. All her life she had been waiting for this time. She knew it now. She was spared to tell the people why the comet had come. Although her purpose was diametrically opposed to that of Henry Maddox, she also fed and grew to her full stature after almost a century of existence. Frank Meggs was surely another. He was born in Mayfield and had lived there all his life, and he hated every minute of time and every person and every event that told of his wasted life here. He hated College Hill, for he had never been able to go there. His family had been too poor, and he had been forced to take over his father's store when his father died. He had once dreamed of becoming a great businessman and owning a chain of stores that would stretch from coast to coast, but circumstances, for which he blamed the whole of Mayfield, had never permitted him to leave the town. His panic sale had been his final, explosive hope that he might be able to make it. Now he, too, found himself growing in his own special direction as he fed upon the disaster. He did not know just what that direction was or to where it led, but he felt the growth. He felt the secret pleasure of contemplating the discomfort and the privation that lay ahead for his fellow citizens in the coming months. While personal fear forced him to the conclusion that the disaster would be of short duration, the pleasure was nevertheless real. It was especially intense when he thought of College Hill and its inhabitants in scenes of dark dismay as they wrestled in vain to understand what had happened to the world. There were others who fed upon the disaster. For the most part they found it an interruption to be met with courage, with faith, with whatever strength was inherent in them. It was not a time of growth, however, for Reverend Aylesworth. It was the kind of thing for which he had been preparing all his life. Now he would test and verify the stature he had already gained. 
on the night they verified the presence of the comet dust in the disabled engines ken was the last to leave the laboratory it was near midnight when he got away his father had left much earlier urging him to come along but ken had been unable to pull himself away from the examination and measurement of the spectrum of lines that bared the comet's secret he had begun to understand the pleasure his father had spoken of, the pleasure of being consumed utterly by a problem important in its own right. As he left the campus there was no moon in the sky. The comet was gone, and the stars seemed new in a glory he had not seen for many nights. He felt that he wouldn't be able to sleep even when he got home, and he continued walking for several blocks in the direction of town. He came abreast, finally, of the former rainbow skating rink, which had been converted into a food warehouse. In the darkness he saw a sudden, swift movement against the wall of the building. His night vision was sharp after the long walk. He saw what was going on. The broad doors of the rink had been broken open. There were three or four men lifting sacks and boxes and barrels stealthily into a wagon. Even as he started toward them, he realized his own foolishness and pulled back. A horse whinnied softly. He turned to run in the direction of Sheriff Johnson's house, and behind him came a sudden, hoarse cry of alarm. Horses' hooves rattled frighteningly loud on the cement. Ken realized he stood no chance of escaping if he were seen. He dodged for an instant into a narrow space between two buildings with the thought of reaching an alley at the back. However, it was boarded at the end, and he saw that he would have to scale the fence. A desperate horseman would ride him down in the narrow space. He fled on and reached the shadows in front of the drugstore. He pressed himself as flat as possible in the recess of the doorway, hoping his pursuer would race by. But his fleeing shadow had been seen. The rider whirled and reined the horse to a furious stop. The animal's front legs pawed the air in front of Ken's face. Then Ken saw there was something familiar about the figure. He peered closer as the horseman whirled again. Jed, he called softly. Jed Tucker. The figure answered harshly. Yeah, yeah, that's me. And you're... you're Ken. I'm sorry it had to be you. Why did you have to come here at this time of night? Ken heard the sound of running feet in the distance as others came to join Jed Tucker. Jed had not dismounted, but held Ken prisoner in the recess with the rearing impatient horse. Ken wondered how Jed Tucker could be mixed up in a thing like this. His father was president of the bank and owned one of the best homes in Mayfield. Jed and Ken had played football on the first team together last year. Jed, Ken said quickly, give it up. Don't go through with this. Shut up, Jed snarled. He reined the horse nearer, threatening Ken with the thrashing front legs. When Jed's companions arrived, Jed dismounted from the horse. Who is it? a panting voice asked. A cold panic shot through Ken. He recognized the voice. It was that of Mr. Tucker himself. The bank official was taking part in the looting of the warehouse. The third man... Ken recognized in rising horror was Mr. Allen, a next-door neighbor of the Tuckers. He was the town's foremost attorney and one of its most prominent citizens. We can't let him go, Allen was saying. Whoever he is, we've got to get him out of the way. Mr. Tucker came closer. He gasped in dismay. It's young Maddox, he said. You, what are you doing out this time of night? Under any other conditions, the question would have seemed humorous, coming from whom it did now. But Ken felt no humor. He sensed the desperate fury in these men. Give it up, he repeated quietly. The lives of 15,000 people depend on this food supply. You have no right to steal an ounce that doesn't belong to you. I'll never tell what I've seen. 
Tucker shook his head in a dazed, uncomprehending manner, as if the proposition were too fantastic to be considered. We can't do that, he said. We can't let him go, Alan repeated. You can't expect us to risk murder. There'll be plenty of that before this winter's over. Our lives depend on this food, you know that, Tucker said desperately to Ken. You take your share, and we'll all be in this together. Then we know we'll be safe. Ken considered, his panic increasing. To refuse might mean his life, if he could pretend to fall in with them. You can't trust him, Alan raged. No one is going to be in on this except us. Suddenly the lawyer stepped near, his hand raised high in the air. Before Ken sensed his intention, a heavy club smashed against his head. His body fell in a crumpled heap on the sidewalk. It was after 2 a.m. when Professor Maddox awoke with the sensation that something was vaguely wrong. He sat up in bed and looked out the window at the starlit sky. He remembered he had left Ken at the university and had not yet heard him come in. Quietly, he arose from the bed and tiptoed along the hallway to Ken's room. He used the beam of a precious flashlight for a moment to scan the undisturbed bed. Panic started inside him and was fought down. Probably Ken had found something interesting to keep him from noticing the alarm clock on the shelf in the laboratory. Perhaps someone had even forgotten to wind the clock and it had run down. Perhaps even the bearings of its balance wheel had finally become frozen and had brought it to a stop. Mrs. Maddox was behind him as he turned from the door. What's wrong? she asked. He flashed the light on the bed again. I'd better go up to the laboratory and have a look, he said. Ken's mother nodded. She sensed her husband's worry and wanted not to add to it. Take Ken's bicycle, she said. It will be quicker even if you have to walk it uphill. I'll have some hot chocolate for you when you come back. Professor Maddox dressed hurriedly and took the bicycle from the garage. He did have to wheel it most of the way up the hill, but it would be easier coming down anyway, he thought. He wondered how much longer the bearings in it would hold up without freezing. As he came within view of the laboratory building, he saw that the windows were utterly dark. He knew that even with the shades down, he would have been able to see some glow of the oil lamps which they used, provided Ken was still there. He waited a full ten minutes against the chance that Ken had put out the lamps and was on his way out. Then he knew Ken had gone long ago. He ought to call the sheriff and have the police cars search for him, but there were no phones and no cars. He mounted the bicycle in fresh panic and rode recklessly down the hill to town. At Sheriff Johnson's house, he pounded frantically on the door until the sheriff shouted angrily through an open window, Who is it? It's Dr. Maddox. You've got to help me, Johnson. Ken's disappeared. He went into details, and the sheriff grunted, holding back his irritation at being disturbed because of his long friendship with Henry Maddox. I guess I should have gone down to the station, said Professor Maddox, realizing what he had done. I had forgotten there would be men on duty. It's all right. I'll come with you. The sheriff's car had broken down days before. He kept a horse for his own official use. You can ride behind me, he said. Sally's a pretty decent gal. You get up there on the porch railing and climb on right behind me. Professor Maddox maneuvered himself behind the sheriff on the horse, balancing unsteadily as Sally shied away. Where do you think Ken could have gone? asked Johnson. Don't you suppose he's over at one of his friends? He wouldn't do a thing like that without letting us know. He went up the canyon with a wood detail two or three weeks ago. I know, but that was different. 
Aren't there any policemen on the streets now? What happened to the ones who used to patrol in the radio cars? They're walking their beats, most of them. Two are mounted in each district. We'll stop by the station, and then try to find the mounted officers. It's the only thing we can do. They moved down the dark, empty streets. It seemed as if there never had been any life flowing along them, and never would be again. They passed the station, lit by a smoking oil lamp, and left word of Ken's disappearance, and moved on. They came to the edge of the business section, where street lamps used to shine. This area was even more ghostly than the rest, but policemen patrolled it, perhaps out of habit and a conviction that failure to do so would admit the end of all that was familiar and right. As they rode on, the clatter of other hoofbeats on the cement sounded behind them. Johnson turned and halted. A flashlight shone on their faces. It was Officer Dan Morris, who identified himself by turning the light on his own face. The warehouse has been broken into, he said. Over at the skating rink, somebody has busted in and made off with a lot of food. The sheriff seemed stunned by the news. What idiots, he muttered self-accusingly. What complete pinheaded idiots we turned out to be. We didn't even think to put a special guard around the warehouse. Do any of the other patrolmen know? Yes, Clark and Dudley are over there now. I was trying to round up someone else while they look for clues. I'll have to get over there, said Johnson. But Ken, Professor Maddox said, I've got to keep looking. You come with us. I've got to look into the robbery. Ken can't have come to any harm. I'll pass the word along and we'll all keep watch for him. I promise you we will. I'll keep on, said Professor Maddox. He slid from the horse. I'll keep moving along the street here. If you find anything, I'll be somewhere between here and home. Unwillingly, Sheriff Johnson turned and left him. The sounds of the two horses echoed loudly in the deserted street. Professor Maddox felt a burst of anger at their abandonment of him, but he supposed the sheriff was doing what he had to do. He recognized that it was foolhardy to be afoot in the deserted town this time of night. Without a single clue to Ken's whereabouts, what could he hope to accomplish? He strode on along the sidewalk in the direction the policeman had disappeared. It was as good a direction as any. After he had gone a block, he stumbled in the darkness. Some soft, resilient object lay across the sidewalk before Billings' drugstore. In anger at the obstacle, Professor Maddox caught himself and moved on. A sound stopped him. A groan of agony came from the object upon which he had stumbled. He turned and bent down and knew it was a human being. Faintly, under the starlight, he glimpsed the dark pool of blood on the sidewalk. He turned the body gently until he could see the face. It was Ken. He didn't know how long he knelt there inspecting the motionless figure of his son. He was aware only of running frantically in the direction of the warehouse. He found Johnson. He clutched the sheriff's arm. They've killed him, he cried. I found Ken and they've killed him. Johnson turned to the nearest officer. Ride for Dr. Adams. Dudley, get that horse and wagon at the Whitaker's place. Where did you say you found Ken, Professor? At Billings, lying on the sidewalk with his head smashed in. You others meet us there, he called. Clumsily, they mounted the sheriff's horse together again. It seemed to take hours to ride the short distance. They dismounted and Johnson knelt and touched the boy tenderly. Then Professor Maddox heard, barely audible, the sound he would remember all his life as the most wonderful sound in the world. Dad. Ken's lips moved with the word. Dad. His voice was a plea for help. 
End of chapter 8